Great to see you here this morning. The rain's eased off a little bit. Uh, if you can hear a ringing and a reverb, uh, I'm sorry about that. Um, hopefully we can get that sorted out as we go along. Uh, if you could keep your Bibles open at Ruth chapter 2, uh, that would be fantastic. And uh, let me lead us in prayer, having heard the word of God and as we come to consider it now. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for your word, living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Father, we praise you that your word is not idle, but accomplishes exactly the purposes for which you send it out. So, Father, give us eyes to see the kindness that you uh, require of us in your word, knowing that in the Lord Jesus you have expressed a kindness to us beyond compare. And Father, we pray that by your spirit you would transform us to live lives of ever-increasing kindness to the glory of your name. Amen. Is God absent? That's the question that I posed for you last week and in a lot of ways that's the theme that is explored in the five books that the book of Ruth is uh, a part of, uh, whether it's Lamentations, whether it's Song of Songs, whether it's, uh, what are the other ones, Ecclesiastes, uh, Esther, and here in the book of Ruth, is God absent? And yet, uh, the particular theme that this book explores uh, related to that question is the theme of kindness. What does kindness look like? If you are looking for romance, if you are looking for uh, even erotic literature in the scriptures, it's not the book of Ruth. It's the book of Song of Songs. This book explores not romance, but kindness. The kindness of a child to a parent, Ruth to Naomi. The kindness of a man to a woman, Boaz to Ruth. And the kindness of a society that lives a life of kindness. Particularly, it explores how kindness comes when a group of people, a society, a village, a town... Uh, the people of God live in light of and in obedience to God's law. But what does kindness mean and what does it look like? And particularly, what does it look like in the context of a time of peril? The book of Ruth will explore that theme, particularly this week in the context of peril, and then next week in the context of abandonment. What does kindness look like when the rubber hits the road? Because it's not emotionalism. Kindness is not the feeling that we have towards another person or the feeling that they might have as they receive something from someone. The feeling might be there sometimes, and if it is, great. If it's not, well, that doesn't matter so much. What matters with kindness is in the heart and in the mind the intention of considered generosity, of looking what a person needs, considering what they need, and supplying it generously. Kindness is about doing what is beneficial and good intentionally for the other person. 
As we come into this passage, if you flick your eyes back to the end of chapter 1, you'll see that Ruth and Naomi have arrived back in Bethlehem uh, just at the beginning of the barley harvest. And uh, if you look towards the end of the chapter, chapter 2, verse 23, uh, the period of time that we're looking at is right through the barley and wheat harvests. So several months, and particularly in the ripe season rather than in the autumn and in the winter. As they come, however, we're also given another piece of context that will help us understand what is going on. Chapter 2, verse 1, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man or a man of standing, an eminent man from the clan of Elimelech. Now, you remember that uh, Naomi's husband uh, was also from the clan of, well, he is named Elimelech, and that's the clan uh, to which Boaz belongs to. Boaz is a man of standing, or an eminent man, a prominent man, and we'll come back to that role in just a moment. More than that, as we'll see in next week's passage, if you flick your eyes to chapter 2, verse 20, Boaz is a redeemer, whatever that means. And we'll think about next week what it means for Boaz to be a kinsman redeemer or a redeemer. But as we work our way through this chapter in Ruth chapter 2, it really needs a bit of context in order for us to fully understand what it is that's going on. And the context, again, comes from the law. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 9 and 10, this is what God says. He says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner, the traveller, the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. And just in case they haven't got it, he repeats it again in Deuteronomy 24. When you reap the harvest in your field and you forget a sheaf in the field, don't go back and get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, don't go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, don't strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner the fatherless and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. What Ruth proposes to do in this chapter is to beg, effectively, to scrounge the scraps. That's what the poor people would do in those times. How would they find sustenance? How would they find uh, daily food? They'd go out into the fields... And if the landowners were living according to God's law, then if a harvester dropped something on the ground, they wouldn't pick it up. If they forgot to get something out of the tree, they wouldn't go back and get it. If they looked back and saw they had missed some things, they wouldn't go back. But rather those things were left there for the poor to be able to take home and survive. That is, the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow. 
God has a system in place in his law to make sure those who are struggling to survive have a means to survive. And so Ruth takes on that role and says to Naomi, let me go and do this. But when she does it, so you see there in... um, I am going blind... Here we go. Uh, when, uh, when she does it, notice the vulnerability which she is taking upon herself. Look with me at verse 9. He's, uh, Boaz says to Ruth, Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Haven't I charged the young men not to touch you? Or again in verse 16, uh, he says there, uh, Let them, uh, and also pull out some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her or do not harass her. And again in verse 22, uh, Naomi says after the day's events, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. There are no police in Israel at this time. There are no magistrates. There are no judges as a full-time profession. There are people that they might go to for judgment, but more often than not, such a person needs an advocate to come to the city gate and plead the cause. But what advocate would Ruth have? She's a foreigner and her husband is dead. And Naomi's husband is dead. Who would possibly plead their case if something happened to her? And if she is in the fields, then what defence does she possibly have against assault, against danger, against peril? And as we will hear in a few moments' time, that's not an abstract question for the era in which she was living. It's the time of the judges. And some of the most disturbing passages in the Bible occur in the time of the judges of what one human can do to another. And they're not dead questions for us either, are they? Our news waves, our media has been full in the last weeks of the way men can treat women and the despicable and abominable ways women can suffer at the hands of men. Ruth knows what she's getting into, but she knows that she and Naomi need to live. For whatever reason, Naomi can't do it, and Ruth goes into the field on her behalf. And it begins to help us understand, uh, it it helps us begin to understand how Ruth's commitment to Naomi in chapter 1 actually has real pointy, sharp edges to it. For whatever reason, Naomi can't scrounge for herself and beg for herself. And Ruth goes back knowing that. For whatever reason, uh, Naomi can't go into the fields, Ruth knows the kind of danger that that can bring and she goes anyway. 
where Naomi goes, she will go. Her God will be Ruth's God and may nothing separate them. But for whatever reason, and uh, in the passage it's uh, kind of presented as a coincidence, but we'll think more about this in two weeks' time, about whether it was a coincidence or not, uh, Ruth ends up in the field of this man, Boaz, the man of standing. And here we meet Boaz. Uh, He has a position uh, in uh, the land that is of influence. He has men in the field, he has young women in the field, and he exerts influence over them. But is his standing from his position or is it from his character? Well, in the ideal world, he would have his position because of his character. And that's actually one of the things that the Bible longs for in terms of its leaders, particularly in the church, that you appoint the leader because they have a standing in their character. That is, the role follows the character. But here in this passage, it's signalled to us something about his nature and his character right from the first words that we hear from him in verse 4. He says to the reapers as he comes uh, to the fields from Bethlehem, he says, the Lord be with you. And they say, the Lord bless you. We're already given a context with the kind of man that he is and the kind of people he wants his people to be, people that are conscious of their God. The Lord be with you. They live life under the sun. Even though God doesn't speak in this book, he doesn't give prophets in this book, he doesn't promise anything in this book, he lives life under the sun, conscious of his God. The Lord be with you. He knows his people. He knows his fields. And so when there's a new person in the field, he knows who's out of place. He's attentive to what's going on around him. Verse 5, Boaz said to the young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? He recognises that there's a stranger in the field. And he gives consideration to this stranger. As this passage unfolds, we see Boaz exerting a kindness to Ruth a kindness to Ruth that has an intentionality about it. He's thoughtful. He gives her what she needs. And so as you go through verses 8 and 9, Boaz calls Ruth to himself and he says, Listen, my daughter, don't glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young woman, providing protection. Let your eyes be on the field, they're reaping, and go after them. Have I charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. He's providing for her. Or again, in verse 14, At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. Yes, she may be gathering things from the field, but would she have eaten during the day? Most likely not. But he comes and gives her a meal, food and drink during the day. And more than that, he sends her home with things. What she couldn't eat, she takes home. And then again in verse 17 and 19, uh, we are given a picture of just how much she is able to glean from his field. Remember, this is what the poor do to beg, to get the scraps. 
but she comes home with an effer of barley. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't use effers when I go shopping. Uh, I'm pretty sure you don't either. Uh, it's a bit of a debate about how much it is, but it's somewhere between 25 to 40 litres um, uh, as a measure. Uh, that's a massive amount to bring home after one day. Because Boaz knows who she is and he does what is needed for her and for Ruth's mother. But notice as well that Boaz's kindness influences the younger men to be kind as well. In verses 8 to 10, uh, the men, rather than touching or harassing her, uh, are under the protection of the young men so that she can go safely with the young women who are presumably safe as well and the young men exert their uh, strength to draw the water uh, for her to be able to drink. Or again in verses 15 and 16, uh, when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and don't reproach her, don't harass her, don't rebuke her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. Boaz exerts his influence to teach the young men and to instruct the young men to live lives of kindness as well. Yes, you've gathered it up, but deliberately drop some on the ground so that you can't go back and get those so that Ruth can pick them up instead. What a picture of kindness that is. Here's a man who has taken the law and understood the law, understood the requirements of the law, and understood, more importantly, the spirit of the law. The law says, let the foreigner, let the stranger, let the orphan and the widow gather up the scraps. But he's made a meal, and more than a meal, he's made a harvest out of the scraps so that she can be cared for. He understands who she is, he understands her needs, he understands her mother-in-law's needs, and he provides for them. Who wouldn't want a boss like that? Who wouldn't want a father like that? Who wouldn't want a man in our church community like that? A man who looks and sees the needs of others and acts accordingly. Let me ask you again, is God absent in this passage? He doesn't speak. He doesn't promise. He doesn't send a prophet to prophesy. There's no shadow of the Christ who is to come. And yet, nevertheless, in this passage, we see something of his presence as we see people live life under the sun, conscious of their God and in obedience to his law. Conscious of their God and in obedience to his law. They meditate on the law. Boaz in particular understands the law and seeks to live a life of liberal generosity as an outworking. Not as a minimum requirement, yes, grudgingly I have to leave some things in the field so that the poor people can come and pick it over, but no, actually I want to leave things generously so that the poor can be cared for and looked after and survive. 
there's a kindness that comes out in this passage because people are obedient to God. But lest we take it for granted, flick with me a couple of pages back. We're not going to read the whole thing, but the little bit that we do read will give you a picture of understanding of this time. Judges chapter 19 to 21 represent probably one of the most difficult passages to read emotionally in the Bible. And particularly if you have suffered abuse of one form or another, let me alert you that this passage is full of it. And if you want to come and talk to me afterwards, please do. Chapter 19, verse 1 of Judges. In those days there was no king of Israel and a certain Levite was sojourning, travelling in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah where Elimelech, Naomi, Boaz and Ruth are all residing. But this concubine was unfaithful to him. So he didn't take a wife, for starters. He took a concubine and she, in turn, was unfaithful to him rather than faithful to him. And she went back to her father's house in Bethlehem and was there for four months before he bothered to get up and do anything about it. He comes back to Bethlehem in Judah and uh, you see there um, in the next few verses that a life of... uh, eating and drinking and being merry and getting drunk and laziness then pursues. He uh, wants to go back home with his concubine, but he's persuaded to stay day after day, eating and drinking and being merry, to the point where by the time he realises he really needs to get going, he leaves halfway through the day, meaning he can't get back home in the same day. What then happens is that as they travel, they uh, night falls. And so in order to find a place to stay, they're near Jerusalem, but in those days Jerusalem was occupied by Gentiles, not by Jews. Uh, The servant says, well, let's go to Jerusalem, the city of the Jebusites, and stay there. Verse 12, his master said to him, we will not turn aside to the city of foreigners who don't belong to the people of Israel, but we'll go on to Gibeah. And so they go to Gibeah. Why would we stay with foreigners? God's people will look after us, says the man who takes a concubine who is unfaithful to him and lives a life of indolence. They get to Gibeah, verse 15. They sat down in the open square of the city because no one took them into the house to spend the night. No hospitality, no grace. But eventually an old man comes and he says, come and stay with us. And then he gives a warning, verse 20, only don't spend the night in the square. A tone of ominousness, of danger, of warning. Because come verse 22 the men of the town gather around the house and say, bring that man out that we might have sex with him. The man pleads not to do it. And then in a stunning moment of cowardness, he offers his own virgin child 
and the concubine for them to have sex with and rape instead. Violate them and do what with them seems good to you, but don't rape the man. In the end, this man from with the concubine sends his concubine out and she's raped repeatedly until the morning. And then in stunning callousness, verse 27, come the morning, the master gets up, the concubine is lying there, prostrate, unable to move. Care? No. Compassion? No. Get up. It's time to go. Israel is so outraged by what happens in this passage that they gather together and wage war against their own tribe of Benjamin to the point where they almost wipe Benjamin off the map completely. An act of genocide, almost. They realise they have gone too far in their punishment and they try to figure out, well, then what are we going to do? because Benjamin is going to die out unless they have women to marry. Their solution? They figure out that one town had not come to join in the war. So they go and wage war on that town, kill all the men, kill all the women except the virgins, kidnap them and give them to the Benjaminites they just destroyed. But they weren't enough. And so they teach the Benjaminites to fall on a town during a festival and to kidnap the women and force them to come home. Sounds a lot like Boko Haram, doesn't it? Forced servitude, rape, no longer on an individual scale in a town, but on a national scale across the country. That's how the book ends. Contrast Boaz. How delightful it is when there are men who live under God's law and seek to create a culture and a society that exercises kindness rather than self, who promotes rather than peril. Brothers and sisters, we live in an age where the questions of how children relate to their parents, of how men relate to women, and particularly younger men, are very much at the core. Read in the past, you've heard the news the last couple of weeks about the state aged care system and you've had parents in aged care or you've experienced that world you know how often this place is pretty dark it's ever in London being kidnapped off the streets and murdered by a police officer allegedly with Brittany Higgins in Parliament allegedly or whatever is on with Christian Porter, 
their funds for our good, but we use their funds for their good, no matter what it costs us. But what does it look like for men to be conduct to women? Men, as we've heard in the last weeks from my agenda, are generally taller than women. We use their strength for their safety rather than for danger. In my first night at Watson's, I was unpacking the boxes. Emma and the boys were still back at Emma's house. There was a domestic dispute across the road. Our neighbourhood would hear it. What do you do at that point? I'm not particularly tall, I'm not particularly strong, but you go into the danger. The other guys in the apartment block where that car lived refused to go anywhere near it. They didn't want to get involved. But when someone's life is in danger, you get involved. You knock the door. You intervene so that the world is in safety rather than cut up with the shattered glass that is through a house and thrown at her. When you are walking, you conscious of the women who are walking past, of the threat and feel that they may be. How do you kindly give them a warm birth so they don't feel threat? Or, in the case of one of my friends, how are you aware of the young teenage girl who has the van stop beside them and try to kidnap her? And you intervene and protect. Yes, a woman shouldn't have to walk in fear of danger of being that call, of having remarks made about her body. The reality of the world that we live in, women have a particular kind of peril. Walk the woman home at night. Don't let her to walk herself. Exercise care and kindness. Give them time around the home. To read the Bible, to do the Bible study, to care. Look up, look around, and don't look at them undressed, but look at them as dear sisters in Christ. There's a particular kindness that men can exert to young men as well. It's been in the news in the last few weeks, and the question people are asking why aren't schools doing it? And as the head of our school politely, firmly point out, and the head of a few other schools politely, firmly point out, schools will view their processes, yes, do what they can, teach things, yes. In the end, in the relationships, and particularly in the family home, the young men and young women, young men particularly learn how to treat the women around them. Absentee parentism simply won't do it. A school will teach your children relate to women, you will for good or for ill. So here's a couple of things that we do in our family. We hope help you give you food for thought. We start with small things, age appropriate. The rule in our family is girls and guests first. Come at dinner time. Come at lunchtime. Just particularly pay to me, 
because when my blood sugar drops, it plummets. Emma can tell just how far it drops through the floor when I need to eat. But we insist on the last eat because girls come first and guests come first. Or we discovered last night, perhaps grandparents should come first too. Um, when you're standing, the lift or doors, hold the door open. You express politeness and kindness. Can a woman open the door for themselves? Of course they can. Can they stand on a bus and need sit? Of course they can. But it's a way of existing and expressing a consciousness of those around you in small things so that when a bigger thing happens, you're already prepared and you already have a consciousness to look out for and use your strength to defend and protect rather than to impair. Will get get it wrong? Will we meet misplainers? Yes. Will we meet chauvinists? Yes. Will we meet people that are accidentally or sometimes on purpose condescending? Yes. Women don't grudge it because we live in a real world where sin is different. We want to promote cultures in our lives where men learn to use strength to care for women. Adolescence is not an extended childhood. We've turned adolescence and teenage years into an eternal childhood with no supervision. It's in the past used to be the exact opposite. Adulthood with supervision. We need to regain that sense of old men looking after young men. Whether it's in the home, fathers, how do your children treat your wife? Do you encourage them to treat your wife and to be conscious of their needs? All revolves around again to what kind of community we want to be. Is our church going to be a church of safety? The younger, careful, older. The men are creating cultures of safety for women. When the older generation are teaching the younger generation to care. The way to do that is if you're present and get involved. And it never happened occasionally because Church, we all all types. Emma and I look out for each other. We're at a particular church. There were a lot of newcomers this week, about many newcomers each week. But have all kinds of issues and problems. Emma's very welcoming. But we need very early on that I need to be aware of what was going around her as the men impose themselves physically on her. We had the same issue with a student minister at another church. A little group of people who were conscious when men were crowding her, calling her and look after one another. Before we started this was quite a preached quite long. But these are important issues for us to consider. 
kind of people we want to be in life under the sun for our God? What kind of cultures we want to develop in ourselves, in our community, in our families? And we pray that God would show kindness amongst us. People would delight and hear the Christ. Amen.